This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Judas the Apostle, and the author is Van R. Mayhall Jr., and Van joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Van. Hey, Steve. How you doing? Well, this is a controversial title, Judas the Apostle. We'll get into that a little later. But let me read what you've written about your book. You say this, A language professor battles a billionaire across three continents over a 2,000-year-old jar she believes is evidence that one of the apostles kept a journal of Christ's public life. Well, that would put shockwaves through all of Christianity, wouldn't it? Well, it may very well uh, do that. Now, we have to maintain our perspective, which is that the book is uh, a work of, of fiction, and this is a uh, what I like to think of as a good story, and a good story uh, line. Uh, the book is really about a number of things. It's about family. It's about faith. Uh, it's about Louisiana and uh, several other sites throughout the world. Um, but it's mainly about a battle between this ancient languages professor, Clotilde Lejeune, and a ruthless billionaire known as the Collector, with a K, um, across three continents over this 2,000-year-old relic uh, inscribed with the name of the arch-traitor Judas uh, Iscariot. Uh, that's kind of the sum and substance of it. Well, let's just uh, take a break here on the book, but just to find out a little bit more about you, Van, and then, you know, where did this idea come from? The idea came up uh, a few years ago. Um, you know, as many people, I I, I did a faith uh, journey. Uh, I'm a cradle Catholic, and Catholics didn't get much Bible study back in that day. And uh, there came a time when I wanted to know more about uh, faith, and I decided to read the Bible from cover to cover. So I went out and got the best one I could find, and I did read it from cover to cover. And I got to Matthew, uh, 26 chapter, where he, 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 he refers to the traitor, and he says, better for that man had he never been born. And I got to thinking about that, and I thought, well, given Judas's end, probably would have been better for him, but what about the rest of us? Uh, how would the salvation story have played out? Well, it's just a loop. There's no, no answer to it, but it got me thinking there's got to be more to this than meets the eye, and that's when I began my research on Judas. It has a bit of the genre of Dan Brown's book, such as The Da Vinci Code. However, you have a, you have a real twist here. Uh, you don't tear down religion. You celebrate the faith of its characters. That's right, and I, I, I do appreciate being mentioned in the same sentence with Dan, Dan Brown, but, but my angle on it is, is to look at the, the positive, to look at the, the good side of religion, to look at the consistencies in religion, and, and, and not, not so much to, to tear it down. Uh, the Dan Brown story on the Holy Grail is a great imaginative uh, story, but 
I think I've written a, a, a fine imaginative story that actually builds on the faith and the character of the, uh, the individuals and the characters that, that, are, that are in the book. Uh, they are sustained by their faith and by their beliefs. Uh, so that, that was my, uh, my angle on it. Where did the characters come from? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, the, 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 the book's got the biblical backstory about Judas in it. That, that gives the book the intellectual heft that it has. Uh, so I knew I needed some religious figures in it. Thus came the Monsignor and the parish priest, Father Al. I needed those characters, and I thought it was a nice contrast, the, the, the friendly uh, parish priest versus, versus the Monsignor, Albert Roque, who is the Vatican uh, operative. Um, that's where those guys came from. They, I needed them to explain the biblical side of it. Uh, Chloe um, is the heroine in the book. Uh, she's born in Madisonville, Louisiana, a little town on the Chifuncta River. And uh, I wanted uh, Louisiana characters because I think people are interested in Louisiana. So Thibodeau Lejeune, her dad, uh, and, and Chloe came from, from that source. And, of course, the book is about three generations of Lejeunes and their, um, their relationship to this relic. So I needed the son, J.E., or, or Judy, uh, 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 Julian Evan, what everybody calls him J.E. for short. Uh, so th- that's where they came from. They all have little different characteristics. Uh, um, J.E.'s uh, an intelligence officer in the U.S. Army, and uh, Chloe, of course, is an ancient languages professor. The beginning of the book uh, takes us back to 73 A.D. to Masada, uh, and the Romans are storming, uh, I guess, uh, hold-up Jews from Jerusalem uh, who have just barely, you know, they have uh, outlasted the Romans until the Romans obviously have too much power and might. They finally... uh, are about to take them over, but what a, I mean, my, my, the, the visual you painted of, of people literally taking their lives because they know it's going to be better than to, uh, be given over to the Romans because of the torture and all that they'll go through. I mean, that was riveting. That was, uh, that just brought me right in. Well, thanks, Steve. The, the, uh, the story of the, of the Sakari, um, the, the Judean revolutionaries, um, depicted in that, that first chapter, it's a, actually the prologue to the book, is an astounding story. Um, and, and Masada itself is an incredible uh, mountain uh, fortress, actually built by Herod the Great a hundred years before uh, the Sakari were wiped out. Um, the Sakari, as I said, were Judean revolutionaries. They were in revolt against the Romans. And when, Rome, when the Romans sat uh, Jerusalem in 70 A.D., they all fled to what was thought to be an invincible uh, fortress up there. Uh, there was only one way up, and it was easily defended. But the Romans, uh, and this is a glimpse into that amazing civilization, they built a ramp. They brought in 15,000 slaves, and over a period of three years, built uh, an, an incredible work, this ramp, so that they could bring their battle engines up to the very wall on this plateau. 
And that's how they got in. Um, amazing. Uh, the Sicarii were not defeated by Roman soldiers, but by Roman engineers. So what's in the jar, this 2,000-year-old jar with Judas Iscariot's name inscribed on it? Well, uh, you might have to get the book to actually find <laughs> that out, but I'll give you a, I'll give you a clue. Okay. Uh, the name Judas is inscribed on the jar, so there's, there's a relic that pertains either to or of Judas in the jar. And it's the, it's sort of the backstory linchpin that, uh, keeps the characters occupied. And of course, there's a, there's a villain in the story, a, a, a billionaire war criminal that has become a collector, uh, of ancient things. And he learns of the jar and he wants what's in it. So that's the thriller side of it. Uh, that takes place in, in, uh, in Madisonville, Louisiana, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, at LSU, and uh, then moves to Lyon, France, and for the and then for the finale, the finale in uh, Jerusalem. It's um, quite a, a, a thrilling uh, end to it. So, as you put it, it's a race for answers. Uh, obviously, uh, this this critical uh, knowledge that's in this jar. Uh, right from Christ's own time with Judas the Iscariot. Of course, Judas, uh, who betrayed this, uh, Christ, who has uh, uh, everything evil and bad about him in our minds, especially as Christians, uh, did he betray Christ? I mean, that, that's a question you raise. Well, there really can be little question about that. All four of the Gospels are very much in sync that Judas betrayed Christ with a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, you know, some experts have questioned whether that, that took place, but uh, that's been handed down, and I think you have to accept that as, as a starting uh, a point. Um, the, the question, though, is why did he do it? Uh, did he do it for 30 pieces of sil silver? as the Orthodox Gospels uh, seem to indicate. Um, one of the things I learned in my research is that Judas was actually the treasurer of the ministry. John says that Judas carried the purse. That uh, He was the man who took in the collections, the donations, provided for the ministry, provided for the poor over the, over the three-year public ministry. He, he, he had in his hands uh, more money than the than the 30 pieces of silver over that period. 30 pieces of silver was, was really not an exorbitant amount of money even even in that time. Uh, so it, it, uh, it, the, the issue of his motivation is what is explored uh, as the contents of the jar are decoded and uh, and, and translated. Why did he do it? And of course, the basic theme of the book, you don't get much more basic than this, good versus evil. You know, you might say that, that that's the basic theme of all thrillers, um, maybe all fiction, but uh, it, it, it uh, the, the, the point is that 
the message needs to be out that people, ordinary people, with their faith and, and using their minds can triumph over evil. Uh, we are not doomed to be, to be victims of evil. The message in the book is that uh, even ordinary people can triumph. And also why God often does not intervene in the face of evil? Well, that, that's contained. People have, people have thought about that for a long time, and so I don't make any special claim to, to, to knowing anything about it, but, but I've thought about it as well. And there's a, a colloquy toward the end of the book between the Monsignor and the, the evil uh, collector uh, at a place called Hekeldama in Jerusalem, uh, which is the Bloody Acre uh, in Jerusalem. And it addresses that issue. Um, why does God let bad things happen is, is a question you often hear. And um, the answer might be interesting to some of your readers, or at least one answer. Where did you come up with the character of the collector? Spelled with a K, as you put. <laughs> well, I needed, a, I needed a, a villain because it is a good versus evil type of uh, scenario. And the collector took shape over a period of time in my mind. Um, uh, he, he, he was born in Armenia, um, actually on the Armenian-Turkish border. It's not a, a uh, place that we as Americans really know or, or have heard much about, but it's an ancient area. And I thought it would be interesting to explore that somewhat um, and so I sort of built the character of the collector around most of the seven deadly sins, greed and uh, sloth and so forth. Uh, you'll find most of them in his character. And also, really, the bottom line, it is faith which propels the characters to victory. So in order to have good to triumph, it takes a lot of faith. It takes a lot of action. It takes, um, it takes people of character, and the message in the book is that if you do the right thing when you're supposed to, it builds character. When you do the wrong thing, and we all know that, uh, when you do the wrong thing, it erodes character. And you don't, you don't build moral um, uh, character for the time when you, when you need it. Uh, these are people, and Chloe, Chloe had actually gotten away from her faith, part of her journey back to explore the, the contents of the jar was a recapturing and a reinvigoration of her faith. And she found as she went through the various episodes with the collector, she needed every bit of it she could muster. Uh, so, yep, I think, I think faith strengthens character and character helps us with our actions. Final question. Is there a sequel? There is a sequel. Actually, I appreciate you asking that. The, the sequel has got about 75,000 words written in it. Uh, <laughs> wow. it, it picks up where the, uh, the action in the first book, uh, let, lets off. And it's a, it, it is again an ex exploration with our, our, our three characters, uh, Chloe, the Monsignor, and J.E., along with some exciting new characters. Um, and, um, it, uh, it explores this ancient sect of 
Judean revolutionaries, the Sakari, in more detail. Thus its title. We've been listening to Van R. Mayhall Jr., author of the book Judas the Apostle. Van, tell us how to get your book. The book's available on um, a number of websites, iUniverse.com, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, it's been featured on the Barnes & Noble website under the Rising Star page, and it's uh, featured uh, this month on the cover page for iUniverse. Also, uh, locally, there are a number of uh, stores that are physically stocking it, but uh, probably for your audience, I would say uh, one of those websites. Well, thank you so much, Van, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure and enjoy talking with you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Dix of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel. The inspiration for the movie, Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection. With host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things. And are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Human, Dawn of Civilization, and the author is Faridun Garagazlu, and Farley joins us now as he's called by his friends and family and all of us. Uh, he joins us on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Farley. Uh, hello, how are you? Great to have you with us. This takes Thank us you. back, what, 3,500 years, right? That's right. That's right. To a time uh, when you, uh, your story is about three generations of rulers of this place called Ariana, the predecessor of ancient Persia. And, of course, That's we know right. a lot about Persia uh, back in those times, uh, mentioned in the Bible, a lot of great leaders uh, that we know about. Yes. 
Now, these three generations were responsible for some great achievements. That's true. That's right. What did they do? What did they accomplish? Actually, they were, uh, they were the King Hamun, which was the first of them, uh, first king that we're talking about. Is uh, the, He started uh, really uh, moving the people from the, the, the shores of the rivers and, and, uh, and lakes to inner uh, land uh, and uh, instead of uh, going to the mountain in the summer or in the winter and come back uh, in the uh, summer and vice versa, uh, they made them more stationary, in other words, from nomad kind of a uh, society, made them to a, a civilized uh, city society, if you will. So uh, then uh, that was uh, one of the biggest, and uh, he started working on the infrastructure in the area of agriculture and uh, building buildings and so forth. In fact, by the end of his uh, time, uh, he, they were able to even make a two-story building. And after him is his son, Hamun. Uh, it's kind of a close name, uh, but uh, in any event, uh, uh, he continued uh, what uh, his father started, including uh, some kind of form of a written uh, language uh, started by a few signs just to indicate uh, between the two groups or, uh, or the king's uh, orders and so forth. Then uh, they tried to make it a little more complete, and then every day they worked on it. And both uh, the father, the son, and also the, the granddaughter, all three of them, they started to making the, uh, the language a little more uh, sophisticated as far as the writing part of it. Uh, also, around that time, Zarasa, uh, which was... Uh, as far as I know, the, the first uh, religion referring to the God Almighty, in other words, uh, one uh, entity that created the world or, or created everything, uh, that was uh, Zarasa's uh, idea and uh, put the power in, uh, in uh, the sun and uh, the fire and so forth and so on in the religion of Zarasterians. Uh, so that was the beginning of that too, which uh, by the end of uh, Puran's uh, uh, ruling, uh, the Zarasta was almost uh, believed and practiced uh, uh, by most of the people in Ariana, which of course uh, later on became known as the ancient Persia. And during that same so, time, there was an organization and training of the military. Uh, yes, 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 true. Uh, and, and of course, the book says it in a little more detail, but uh, they they had no way of, uh, of uh, getting together, have rules and regulations of war, nor they had any, uh, any equipment or, or uh, even weaponry. Uh, except uh, something sharp in their hand, uh, whether it was a javelin or a little sword. And so he he started uh, teaching them how to use uh, the sword, and uh, the, I mean all three of them during this, uh, I would say, uh, 
hundred some years of uh, of their rulings. Uh, they and they told uh, and they taught the uh, the army, if you will, uh, how to get together, how to attack, how to uh, retreat, uh, which I'll call it uh, some form of a military uh, uh, training. Uh, and you have to remember, they had nothing. They had uh, nothing to fight with, nothing to to do. They they didn't know what the, the next person to them is going to do, and when to start, when to stop. And these are the things that came about uh, during the, these three rulers. So uh, that's uh, that's a great achievement, in my opinion. Uh, why do you find it important for your granddaughter to read about ancient Persia? Well, uh, I I go back to when I was a kid, and uh, my uh, my father, my grandfather, they always talked about that. Don't forget where you come from, and don't forget who we are. And uh, your your great grandfather was uh, was the first one that graduated Oxford University in London, and we always been in the government. We help it. We love it. We love the country. And uh, don't ever forget it, that uh, that uh, you have to do your part to uh, to uh, to afford the country and to the country. And at that time, I was I was just a kid. I wouldn't know. Uh, most of the time, I didn't know what they were talking about. And then uh, later on, when I went to to school, I found out that uh, there was uh, some section in the history of Iran that they talked about my uh, my great grandfather and, and my great grandfather. So the, all of these things uh, made me somebody who uh, who was interested, who became interested in in the history of Iran and so on. And the further I went back more interesting I found it. <laughs> so as a kid I used to uh, dream about these things and uh, so that was the reason that I, by the time I was uh, in latter part of my high school age, I started writing uh, some short stories for the magazine and uh, luckily they uh, they printed it and I, I got a very good reception out of it. But when I came after high school to United States, I uh, I just got involved in the schooling and uh, different things, so I never went back to to really writing. Even though I I still once in a while would write short stories for these two magazines. So finally, when I uh, had my granddaughter, I all of, all of a sudden I don't know why I remembered all those times that uh, when I was a kid and uh, my father and my grandfather. We used to talk about uh, uh, Persia, talked about the history and so on. So I said, well, this is a good catalyst for me to start writing again and uh, and then write something that uh, my granddaughter, without getting too technical or too tactical uh, about uh, the history, just get her interested in uh, knowing a little bit about what uh, her family was all about. So here's so this, that was the reason, yes. this uh, fictional account that takes us back uh, 3,500 years. And yes. th- this human, uh, he's very young, and he is chosen at a very young age. Yeah, yeah, yes, he was uh, the king, uh, King Herbert at the time. did not have uh, any children or there were no sibling. One, the way she, he had a sister, which uh, he was... Uh, uh, very disappointed, and finally she was killed uh, by his order. Uh, 
and uh, then he had nobody. And in the meantime, uh, Hohmann was uh, was the general, very young general, who uh, was uh, really doing great uh, thing in in war with the with other tribes around him in that section of the uh, country. And everybody, all, all people started knowing mouth to mouth reputation. Uh, just throughout the country, you know, they, they all knew the name Human and so forth. And in one of the visits, uh, uh, the king decides that uh, there is nobody better and more qualified to be the next king of Ariana. Uh, as a result, he, he pronounced him as his adopted son. And the crown prince, uh, which, uh, of course, later on he took over. Of course, he has to, I guess, learn to be king. And even though he's got a man of genuine character, you call him, remarkable kindness. Mm, yes. So he had some great yes. virtues to be the leader. Yes, yes. yes. And uh, this was realized by the uh, existing king, the old king, uh, who had nobody except he, he found, uh, found him uh, to be qualified in every way, in his mannerism, in his, in his thought, in his ability, uh, so what they call, what they say, what I could refer to it from muscle to brain, you know, he was qualified in every way. But with leadership comes great, usually some great sacrifices. Yes, of course, of course. He, uh, he uh, to begin with, before he was named the crown prince, uh, his uh, his fiance, if you will, or his uh, the woman to be married to him later on, uh, came to to join him in the war and got uh, badly wounded, uh, and uh, and then he had to uh, leave uh, his uh, his parents, his home, and go to these different duties that was uh, put upon him. Uh, so uh, everything, and then when he, <coughs> excuse me, when he became the crown prince and asked from the king, uh, king to come and join him in the capital city, uh, on the way uh, he was attacked uh, by the king's sister. Then, uh, so uh, he went through a lot of stuff, and then. When uh, he came uh, to to King Herbert in the capital city, he realized uh, that uh, being a king is a lot different than being a general, and and all you have to do just worry about the soldiers. You have to think about everything, and, and he learned it all, and he practiced it, and he he became very much loved and respected uh, king. Uh, so as his son, and then uh, the granddaughter which the book explains why the granddaughter, even though at that time, uh, I don't think that they uh, they gave the women uh, enough credit, uh, let alone to, to make her a ruler, but uh, uh, the queen, Purane, proved them all wrong that she is capable uh, and she is as good in every way, including uh, going to war. And, uh, and conduct the war and uh, be a general uh, just like a man or maybe better than a man would do. So 
That's why it makes her very important. While pursuing the the uh, the uh, infrastructure and the language, and uh, in great achievements in agriculture and so on and so forth. This is a book about love, honor, family, and country. It has all the highest, highest kinds of uh, principles. I think you said it all. <laughs> I think you very well described it. And this is what I try to do uh, uh, without coming up with details that might uh, be offending to somebody. The only thing that I like to uh, say that at one time it refers to the, the, in the book, it refers to the country of uh, narrow eyes. Uh, now, that, that was no uh, irrespect to, to, uh, to any Chinese or Oriental uh, country, but that's what they called them. In fact, until recently, uh, maybe a uh, couple of hundred years ago, the people referred to them in that, uh, not in a disrespectful way, but, but uh, that's how, how the country was known to them before they started naming them as China and Korea and so forth. So uh, I just want to make sure that nobody gets offended, you know, by that. That was the term that they used to identify them. And a theme in your book, there's literally no limit to the progress and creativity of a people encouraged by their leaders and their government. Yes, yes. And in fact, at one time, I, several places in the book, I, I say that, uh, it's uh, it's amazing that uh, when you do everything right as a leader, uh, the people have no choice but by follow your uh, your leadership and love you and, and trust you and and, uh, and respect you. And once these things happen, the country has no way uh, nowhere to go except the, the right way and uh, to the to become more civilized uh, as days go by. Uh, and and they, this is this this can happen in our society today. I'm not trying to be political and, uh, and uh, making any announcement like that. But but uh, here, the leader starts. Everybody follows. And if he happens to be the right leader for the uh, for the people, uh, then everything is uh, gonna be glorious. And this is what happened. This is what I try to to emphasize in the book. The title of the book, Human, Dawn of Civilization. Farley, tell us how to get your book. Well, uh, first of all, uh, our universe is kind enough to handle all of these things, so the best uh, source is our universe, uh, uh, through our universe. But uh, the, most of the agencies and bookstores now handle it, so uh, it's easy to get. Well, thank you so much, Farley, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Show me the money! Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. 
Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Five Sources of Human Hope, Mirror of Our Humanity, Your Glimpse into the Human Soul. And the author is Alphonsus Obayuana. Dr. Obayuana joins us now on iUniverse. Hello, doctor. How are you doing? Great to have you with us. Let me read what you've written about your book to start out our discussion here. You say this, if you have ever wondered why you are here, if you have heard about the power of human hope, but do not fully understand how it works, and if you've been in search of personal peace, but do not know where exactly to find it, this book is for you. This book has resulted from 30 years of scientific research that in very plain language comprehensively defines human hope. It exhaustively explains it, effectively demystifies it, thus making it more practical to use, visualize, feel, and understand. Well, 30 years of scientific research. Take us back to 1979. How did this all start, Dr.? Thank you very much. Uh, my uh, first sustained uh, curiosity and uh, serious consideration about uh, an actual study of human hope be- began in my third year of medical education. At the time, I was doing a required rotation in psychiatry as part of my training when I became struck by the degree of paralyzing pessimism and profound sense of helplessness on the part of uh, several depressed patients, especially those who were admitted to the hospital because of attempted suicide. 
as I uh, interacted with these patients during my assigned duties of obtaining personal history and performing physical examinations on them, I began to wonder how helpful and uh, diagnostically informative it could be to have uh, an instrument for objective measurement of human hope so that doctors may be able to predict and perhaps prevent depression and suicide. That's how I started. Well, that's been quite a project for many decades now, and I find it so interesting that uh, somewhat controversial to some that you say that nobody, including those who attempt and commit suicide, is ever totally hopeless. That That is an incredible statement. Uh, help us better understand. Well, you know, <clears throat> suicide uh, is an undesirable act by any uh, standard. However, when you look at the literature, and you look at autopsy reports, um, psychological autopsies, uh, that is, you would find that uh, the reasons why people commit or attempt to commit suicide uh, will fall into one of five categories. The one the first one is a loss of sense of personal relevancy, that loss of self-esteem or a, 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 a sense of personal worthlessness. That is one. The second one stems from um, relationships that have gone south. Um, either a divorce or a separation of some type or some other um, uh, a loss coming from um, an estranged relationship. The third one is a sense of material insufficiency, uh, not uh, necessarily poverty or net worth, but just the feeling of material insufficiency. The other one is lack of information and knowledge or answers to your question. And of course, the fifth one is some spiritual void uh, of some type, uh, lack of uh, religious grounding. So when people commit suicide, usually it's one of these uh, reasons. And in the mind of the one who is considering suicide, they're trying to get to have peace. And that promise of peace is behind every action we humans take every day and at any time of the day. So when you really think about it, a person con contemplating suicide is hoping to get beyond this suffering and loss into some form of peace or a peaceful phase. 
So it is not due to hopelessness. It is actually due to helplessness. No one, no human being, uh, it's unimaginable that any human being will be totally hopeless. Otherwise, you won't be able to do anything. Uh, you need hope to even run, walk, and talk. Very and, well, very well put, Doctor, and uh, really opens up a better understanding of that concept that most of us are confused about. Let's get down to the very basics, though. Let's get down right to what is hope. Hope is the feeling that what is desired is also possible. That is a definition of hope that you will find in most dictionaries and um, as will be stated in uh, any uh, place where people look for definitions. The problem that I, I had during my research was uh, that I was wanting to measure human hope. And to be able to measure human hope, the definition I just gave you uh, gives me uh, no advantage at all. Um, and so what I did was went into, um, into, uh, into the literature to look at what uh, philosophers and uh, eminent teachers have uh, written about hope. And what I found was uh, glowing uh, endorsements of, uh, of hope and the idea of hope. But there was no substantive definition that was helpful to me. For example, I, I saw in a book called The Leaves of Gold, and it described hope as such. Hope is the flower of desire. It administers consolation in distress, quickens all our pursuits, and communicates to the mind the pleasure of anticipation. There is no happiness which hope cannot promise, no difficulty which it cannot mitigate. It is the health of the sick, the freedom of the captive, and the rest of the toiler. Beautiful, and beautifully said, eloquent, but it doesn't tell me how do I go out measuring hope. Uh, so that was my problem. So what I did was that uh, with the grant that I, I received, uh, we conducted an interview and just asked people, what does hope mean to you in one or two words? Uh, people started to uh, give us one or two words. And then from then, we uh, arranged the words uh, into word groups to then uh, see what themes, T-H-E-M-E-S, themes emerge. And that's how we got to know the five sources of human hope. The things that emerged were ego strength, 
or intrinsic assets, there's something inside the person, um, perceived human family support, material sufficiency, or some sense of economic contentment, the level of knowledge and expertise, or educational assets, and a spiritual awareness. Remember, uh, when I told you about the causes of suicide, you will see that they correlate very well with these. And these are the, the five sources of uh, human hope. It comes from within, it comes from a feeling of assistance that we, and admiration and acceptance and cooperation we get from people around us. It comes from our sense of economic contentment and a feeling of material adequacy. It comes from our knowledge of our plight, our surrounding and our own condition. And then a sense of uh, some spiritual coherence uh, regarding our own notion, personal notion of God. Those are the five sources of human hope. Thank you. Uh, where does hope come from? Well, that is a very interesting question. Uh, the, the situation is that everybody has a capacity to hope. And in that rest the predisposition to happiness. And where does it begin? Uh, for there to be hope, there has to be a goal. Okay. A goal is there. Now, when you look at pregnant women, of course, as you know, I'm an obstetrician gynecologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. When you look at pregnant women and you are using ultrasound, you find babies in the womb with their thumbs in the mouth, sucking their thumbs, uh, sometimes very intensely. Uh, there is some question whether that is some form of primal intention or it's just a random act. If it's a random act, it doesn't tell us about hope before birth. But if it is a feeling of pleasure that then, um, that then encourages a, a repeat of that behavior, then there's an issue of hope there because there's expectation of gratification followed by the gratification from the act. And so, it is a possibility that hope may begin in utero. However, we know that once a baby is born, uh, hope begins because they start to expect. When they see mother, they see milk. They, they, know, they think about milk and food. And so that is the beginning of hope. We don't know exactly where it starts from. But you know, uh, if we may go back a little bit, when you look at life itself, it is very, very strange, right? Uh, why do I say that? 
if you see the life as handed down to us, um, you will find that we, that life is essentially an enigmatic journey that is begun involuntarily because none of us has to be born. It is imprecise in offset because we don't remember when, I don't remember, for instance, when I first became alive. And, and it has an inevitable end, unclear purpose, and unknown duration. So man, with the life assigned to us, is a confused animal. And so, except for the grace of hope, uh, we will not be able to make it. And, and that is a part of the mystery of life itself. Uh, I do not have an answer to that, but it's something that uh, uh, keeps me humble and, uh, and prayerful all the time when I know that this enduring mystery persists. And uh, that is all I can say about that. Well, very well put, Dr. Uh uh, we've run out of time. I just wanted to leave everyone with a few more thoughts. Uh, as you say, uh, in your book, you also share some most surprising findings that you uh, discovered, and also you'll share your conclusions about hope. And so this book, The Five Sources of Human Hope, Mirror of Our Humanity, your glimpse into the human soul. Doctor, tell us how to get your book. Oh, my book uh, could be uh, uh, gotten by uh, through Amazon's uh, 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 Barnes and Nobles or through iUniverse, uh, the publishing uh, company. Um, if I may just uh, uh, end, it's, uh, I will end with uh, the, the, the fact that regardless of race, religion, age, gender, or other peculiarities, human hope will always abound whenever individual courage is nurtured and nourished by the family, reinforced and fortified by education and knowledge, affirmed by a sense of material sufficiency and accompanied by faith in God. That is what human hope is all about. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Obayuana, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, sir, for having me. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.